Hi, everybody. I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something not through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and this is Debbie coming to you from sunny South Florida, and today it's going to be a fabulous day because my special guest today is one guy that I've known my entire life, and I just got to laugh because this program is sponsored by our company, Benfo Complete. And I had a customer call up one time and say, Deb, how long you been working for Dr. Jack? <laughs> <laughs> Little did he know that I'm the president of the company, but I've been working for Dr. Jack all of my life. And so I'm glad that he has an employment contract until he's 100. He's working with me until he is 100 years old. And we have seven more good years to go, Dad. And yep. then I'll sell the company. Then I get my car. Then I get my new car. Then you get your new car. Okay, well, welcome, welcome everybody to Stand Up and Speak Up. This is a special day today because today is Dr. Jack's 93rd birthday, and we are so pleased that he is here and happy and has all the answers to living a long and productive and humorous life. So I hope you can hear him as well. We had some technical difficulties, but he will speak clearly. And mom has promised to listen. She's sitting in the back. You can see her underneath the 93. She is yeah. not, not 93. She's feels like she has been with dad 93 years sometimes. But uh, <laughs> Dr. Jack Butts, we are happy to hear, have you here today. And thank you for being my special guest. You're welcome. I'm happy to be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is going to be a fun show. Everybody, Dr. Jack has... Uh, we. He's getting happy birthdays here. Uh, we put a promotion out on Benfo Complete yesterday for the weekend. And anybody that wrote into Dr. Jack was going to get put into a drawing for a $93 coupon for their next order on our on Benfo Complete. And so dad decided that he wanted to put out a promotion that says, buy nine, get three. <laughs> and then he was going to pocket the rest for a new car. Well. Yay. For someone who's not driving anymore, that was that was pretty funny, Dad. I just sit in and I drive around the neighborhood. We can buy a new golf cart. Yep, well, that's not a bad idea. But <laughs> then I have, to play, I have to play pickleball. <laughs> and he mentioned pickleball. We were just talking to a friend from Vermont. Haven't seen her in a lot of years, and uh, they've all moved from tennis and paddleball to now pickleball. 
which uh, is pretty big down here in Florida. I've not played it yet. Dad, have you ever played pickleball? Oh, they're playing here. Have you played it? Uh, I tried it as a gym, and I, it was. It didn't look that exciting to me. It looked too slow. But then <laughs> I saw the national championships on TV yesterday, and it wasn't slow. Oh, goodness. Okay. Uh, all right. So someone says they're not seeing you. Can you hear? I've got chats going on here. Um, because it's being recorded, just you and me. So anyway, um, so no pickleball for us. I've seen a lot of people, mom, I think, tried to play it. Uh, and we we're afraid of falling backwards and hurting hips. We don't want that to happen. But Dr. Jack, we're going to go back a little bit. You and I have already had an hour with dad. So we chronicled a lot about your life as a young boy and living in uh, Philadelphia, growing up in Philadelphia, going to the to the beach with your dad, which I loved. If anybody wants to know that, go back to The Woman Behind the Smile. And it was one of my replay shows called An Hour with Dad. And it was extraordinary. It was, I put an, a half an hour out. It was an hour and a half and I just haven't done it yet, but it's fabulous. So dad, we're going to talk about a few more things. And okay. one of them that I pulled out here, well, you and I are talking about favorite things. Let's yeah. do that first. We were going to have a lightning round about favorite things until I asked you what your favorite dessert was and you took 10 yeah. minutes to tell me. So, Dr. Jack, what is your favorite dessert? Well, the ones that other people make. Um, I don't know if you call it a dessert. One of my favorite things was, was dad's fudge, which we used to make a lot of jokes about. My father was a chemist. And everything he did was had to be exactly right. So he had a fudge recipe that he always would make on special occasions in a little shape of a pie, pie plate size, about six or eight inches, eight inches across. But it was deadly full of sugar. So anyway, at those in those days, I didn't really care about that. But anyway, he cut them, cut them up into little squares, about an inch square. And then you have one or two pieces and there was so much sugar in it that that's all you can handle. And uh, so then my mom would hide it. But hiding candy in my house was like, uh, oh, there's nothing like it. It's worthless. Uh, anyway, my grandpa, who was an MD, wherever we go visit him, he used to give uh, my sister and I boxes of candy of all things. But in those days, I wasn't interested in dentistry. And we used to go through those candy boxes quickly. And then he started to uh, have trouble getting to the candy store. So he would just buy boxes, cases of candy at the drugstore. You know, what about, you know, 24 or 48 bars in them. And uh, we'd take them. And then my mom would attempt to hide them in the house, but it didn't work. Okay. So we, were always, we always had candy bars around. And that was fun. But when I was trying to come up with a dessert for your party tonight, yeah, we went from devil's food cake yeah. with white frosting to yeah. white cake with coconut coconut frosting. Yeah, no question about coconut sticking out all over. So you're a sweet you're a sweet kind of guy for a dentist. Yeah, of all those years. I still have more, all my teeth but one. Which is amazing. I broke one. Yeah. Which is amazing considering 
You had a lot of sweets when you were a kid. A lot of what? You had a lot of sweet stuff in your house. What did your oh, yeah. What did yeah, your aunt and grandma do? The worst thing about that was that uh, I used to chew lots of chiclets, chewing gum, and in those days, chiclets and all all chewing gum was full sugar. Yep. And the fact that I used to chew those so much, thinking that it was helping my my teeth look better, uh, that created a lot of problems. So I had a lot of I had several root canals and all kinds of other interesting things. Okay. I'm on a different picture now, Deb. It just shows me. I know. I wanted people to see you because people weren't able to see you before. So How's that? There you go. There's Dr. Jack showing his 93-year-old chompers. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Do you know that that tooth there is 86 years old? <laughs> They're my first six-year-old teeth. <laughs> Still there, no fillings, nothing. All right, so what's the trick to having teeth when you're 93? Your own teeth. Uh, don't eat anything. <laughs> okay, don't, don't believe him. <laughs> just, just drink a lot. <laughs> what do you tell your great-grandchildren about their teeth? You know, I haven't really said much ever since one of them bit me. <laughs> I can see where this show is going, folks. Here is the key to living 93 years with a smile on your face. Yeah. Thinking of those goofball, quick-witted, humorous comments that don't get you in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well. I used to I used to try to think of almost anything in a funny sort of way if I could. Except you know what I'm careful with that with funerals. But anyway, uh, I enjoy humor, and I always have. And uh, whenever I see anybody or any situation where something funny would be appropriate, it, it seems to pop into my head. And uh, that's the way my brain works, I guess. Well, who had that sense of humor in the family? Who does? Who did? Did you grow up with someone that was funny? Oh, you mean my, um, uh, not really. Uh, we were very quiet, fairly serious. I was thinking about that the other day. My dad was a very quiet, very intelligent, chemical-minded man who everything had to be done exactly right. And the one thing I remember about my family in general, I only had one sister, was that we never, ever, to my recollection, had an argument. I never heard my father or mother argue about anything at any time. My sister and I used to teach each other uh, occasionally, but that she was away most of the time anyway. But uh, we never had a serious argument, and Gwendolyn, in our 67 years, and I have never really had a serious argument either, uh, until now when she told me she wanted to be interviewed instead of me. So I said, what? No, this is my birthday. You wait until November 15th. <laughs> we had that discussion for Father's Day and Mother's Day, and we did both. So. Yeah, I know. But Pop, you know, you were telling me also that uh, back in the day when you would go out with your dad, because you and I talk a lot and we found that, I found that very important uh, over the years, especially after Lou died and you were here uh, with me through that. And then after the, after the reveal of the scam and all that, 
uh, I relied on you and mom tremendously. And we, we actually, I believe that probably changed the way we communicated with each other and really opened up. And I've encouraged the kids to be that way also, because too many times we hid behind looking perfect or trying to be politically correct or just, you know, doing our own thing. And I found over the years that it's more important to, to find out about others by talking with them. And you yeah. made a comment that when you spent time with your dad, who died very young. Yes, 46. You, he was 46. The yeah. only time you guys were really together was at the shore when you were young. And yeah. you were fishing. And you were fishing. And that's not really a time to talk. No, we were like uh, 20, 30 feet apart and the surf was there. So you really couldn't hear anything. And the fish don't say much. <laughs> so, so what's the value of being, being able to talk with one another as a family member and as the patriarch of a large family now, what do you find valuable about the communication process? Which one? All of them. What do you find the most, how, how do you like to communicate and, and talk with kids grandkids and that kind of stuff oh yeah well i think they uh of course the phone iphones and other things have made things a lot easier and then the situations like this zoom is extremely nice to have especially when you're separated by large distances uh of course in the, in the younger days most of our family were not very far apart we don't even i don't even think we had anybody in the next state and now we have kids all over the world, practically. And if we didn't have this type of new communications, it would be very difficult to be in touch with anybody. And uh, they, they work out very nicely, I think. The only thing I don't like about TV is it is just too much, too much politics and too much commercialism and a lot of junk. Well, that that's in 93 years when you were young, you didn't have TV. How did you, how did you keep yourself busy? Well, let's see. I used to go shoplifting a lot. <laughs> oh my god! But then they caught me. <laughs> you did get in trouble, though. You're not. You weren't perfect. You got in trouble, and we won't go into what you did. But you spray painted someone or chalked someone's patio. Their front steps. Yeah, they, or some of our neighbors uh, used to be mad and cranky. And used to yell at us when we made too much noise playing basketball out in front of their house. So one Halloween, we decided to go up to their house at night and take some chalk and make some nasty. Yeah, we didn't have any nasty words, but we had, if you can imagine, in those days, it was during the war. Okay, you don't you don't have to tell them what you did, but you got uh, caught, so right? Right. We painted some stuff on their sidewalk, and then the next day, a very large police officer came to my front door because we were only three houses away and he said do you know anything about this signs up on the street on the sidewalk he said who me sir I said, of course i do I, I did it oh you admit it i said yes sir well come with me we're going to go clean them off aren't we i said okay so we did that's the only time i ever had a confrontation with a policeman yeah, well, and the key to the key to that was you were very polite and admitted what you did. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I think we were we were taught that as as children, and uh, we were very. I think in those days, in the forties and fifties, uh, I think most everybody was pretty 
pretty honest and uh, law-abiding, at least certainly every place we ever lived. And there was never any trouble. There were no, there was no such thing as drugs and all the other things that change your whole complexion of your life. And I'm um, happy about that. So we were lucky that way. And also you kids were too. Fortunately, well, as you learned from us. I, I know there's a lot of bad stuff going on and it gets frustrating when you look outside and you think, you know, what's the future going to be like? But what makes you the happiest today, Dad? Well, besides, besides mom. Occasions like this, I presume. Uh, seeing the family, I often think to myself how much my father missed by dying so young. He never, he never got to meet Gwen. He never knew exactly what I was going to end up doing. Although I wasn't, I just started college when he died, and I was in a pre-med thing, so he knew I was going that direction. Um, but he never, never had any idea, of course, what our children turned out to do and be and their children. And even though I'm a, a doting grandfather, I, I have to admit that I am so proud of my family as a whole group that uh, I can't ever tell anybody too much as you don't want to be bragging all the time, but that they have done so many good things that it's uh, impossible not to brag on them once in a while. So we have a family full of military pop. How did what did you do in the military, and how do you, how do you think that had an impact on the future generations of military members? Yeah, well, when I was uh, when I was a kid, and I don't know why this is because the Second World War was a big thing when I was very young, and I, I started out as a military-minded person back in those days when we used to have we used to play soldiers all the time. We used to make our own little toy soldiers out of lead of all things you make and melt down lead pour it into a mold and make an army for yourself and then there were lots of toy soldiers for sale in the five and ten cent stores and i always liked them and then when the second world war came along my dad's brother was a doctor and he went in uh and was over in france during the war and had a was running a small military portable mobile hospital and he had, he had some exciting times. And my mother's brother, <clears throat> my mother's brother, yeah, her youngest brother was uh, an intelligence guy. And he used to go, uh, he used to go into the pre-invasion sites in Italy and France <clears throat> and would do spy work. He would, he would demolish things. He would put uh, bombs and coal piles. He did all kinds of crazy stuff. And he had some really tough times. He lost a lot of, a lot of friends. And uh, it's something that our kids today have no clue about. There was a very interesting thing that showed somebody sent me recently that I I forwarded to you and some other people. <clears throat> showed a person, a group over in France who took the uh, Normandy beach and every once a year they go out and they paint in the sand the appearance of, of bodies laying in the sand where they were killed. There was like 6,000 of them. And they do it every year, and then the beach is overrun by water and they wash away. But the kids today, I think, I'm not an expert on that, but the kids today, I think, have no clue about those sort of things that I saw all the time on the news and other things and had family members who were involved in. It's just hard to believe that 
we were involved in such stuff as that. People were killed in the Second World War trying to go onto a beach and so forth. And um, we, the kids have no clue. And the schools, in my opinion, are not doing a good job of teaching the kids anything about them. The Civil War was another one. There were more people killed in the Civil War, more Americans killed in the Civil War than all other wars combined. And yet, do you think that children these days know much about that? I don't think so. Uh, I'm distressed by that. But. Well, and that's what you were talking, that, that things have changed and sometimes for the good, sometimes not. And we're, we, you and I and mom and, and our age, we see this thing saying, you know, we need to change these because uh, you and I were talking the other day about my friend Ari Schoenbrunn, who was on uh, in the tower number one, the North Tower yeah. of 9-11. Yeah. We just had the 21st anniversary of 9-11. And a whole, you know, 20 years have passed and all the kids grow, born in that, tw those 20 years, I don't, I don't feel, and I know you don't feel, uh, understand what really happened back then. So you have 90 years of things that have happened. And in those 90 years, dad, what, what was one of the most impactful times for you? What changed your life the most? Uh, well, we had a pretty normal life. We had, uh, I always had a nice house to live in, always had food, whatever, anytime, always had clothing, had all the necessities, no problem, which everyone can't say. Um, I think the one thing in our later life that was probably most impactful was when our house, our house burned. That was, that was a serious time. Fortunately, no one was hurt. I was nearly killed. But only because I listened to my wife, I made it through that. She told me she told me to run when I was going to try and save my car from my burning garage. That was not a good move. And the car did blow up. <laughs> Fortunately, I was not in the front seat. And um, so that was probably one of the things. Uh, children, four children all brought us lots of joy. No, no really difficult times, fortunately. Health-wise, we've been very good, except for my pop. And uh, going back to the military again, uh, we used to play soldier all the time when we were teenagers. And uh, my couple of my buddies in the neighborhood, and we would do all kinds of things, pretending to be soldiers. You know, we'd say, "Okay, now you got to stand, you got to stand at attention over there for 20 minutes without moving." And we did until we passed out and stuff like that. But we we had fun doing that. We didn't hurt anybody. We even built, I built a Jeep out of plywood that we used to put in the annual 4th of July parade. And I had, uh, I used bicycle pedals to make it go, but it was so daggum heavy that uh, you couldn't go more than 10 minutes before you had to, had to stop because it weighed probably 150 pounds. And so we couldn't do that very far. But then uh, as we got closer to school, uh, I went into the National Guard army in the infantry which proved one thing to me and that was that i didn't want to be in the infantry during actual wartime because it's extremely difficult and you have to be very happy that there are people who are willing to do that and uh, it's, it's a it's a tough job but they do it but anyway uh, i joined that and i was in that for five years during school mainly because i really didn't want to be drafted I was willing to go in the military. I was happy about that, but I didn't want to go at that time. I wanted to do it in my own timing if I could. And that was to 
after I graduated from college and dental school, which I did. And then I enlisted right away into the Air Force and spent a couple of years there. And um, I, I enjoyed that. I almost stayed in, but uh, I had lived so long uh, with no money that after my dad, you know, after my dad died in 1950, I had eight years of college uh, schooling to still pay for, and which I was fortunate enough to be able to do. And I didn't owe any money to anybody, even when I got out of the uh, school, but I didn't have any money either. So uh, I married a girl who had a car, which was, that was a good move. <laughs> Blue-eyed blonde with a car. What could be better? So anyway, um, then we went in and joined the Air Force. And then I found out later that um, I could have stayed out of that too, because uh, when I was in high school, I had taken a, a U.S. Navy ROTC scholarship test. And my brother-in-law, as it turned out, uh, myself were the only two members in our class of 600 uh, who got one of those scholarships. And that scholarship was a fantastic four-year, any school, any school in the country, full tuition, so much money a month. And all you had to do was put in four years service in the Navy after you got out of school. And that was great. So I did that and I, I passed that. I went in to take the physical, which is an important part of it. And the guy looked at me and he says, uh, okay, let's look at your eyes. So he looks in my eye and he says, um, oh, that's interesting. What, what happened there? And I said, well, when I was 12 years old, I was playing baseball and I was up at bat in a softball game in gym. And I swung at the ball and the ball spun off the bat and ripped across my eye. Well, I didn't think any of it except I couldn't see anything, uh, except it looked like I had dirt in my eye. So when I went home to my mom, I said, Mom, I've got dirt in my eye, I think, from I got hit with a baseball. And she says, okay. And this stayed for a couple of days. We said, something's wrong. So she took me down into Philadelphia to an eye surgeon. And he says, that's not dirt, that's blood. I said, okay. So it turns out I had torn my retina. And that retina scar is still there today, 70 years later, or 75. And uh, I still, if I had to depend on only my right eye, I probably couldn't function very well. I know I couldn't drive. I don't drive anyway. You know, but, um, with both eyes open, I can see completely normally. But it, with my right eye only, I can't, everything is, is fogged. So... I, I could see enough to not fall over and run into a car, but I, I couldn't do anything. And so anyway, um, I didn't really have to serve, serve in the military at all. Um, but I wanted to do it anyway. So as soon as I got out of dental school, I immediately went into the Air Force. Um, no, I didn't get the scholarship. No. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, we had, I enjoyed being a dentist in the Air Force. It was, it was an interesting, good experience. And, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to stay in, as I said, because I'd lived so long. We went with no money uh, at all for a long time and during the school and so forth. And um, when I went into the Air Force, I was paid the grand sum as a captain. Imagine, as a captain in those days, I was getting paid eleven thousand dollars a year. Now and you have a couple of, of kids that have, or grandkids that have uh, gotten beyond captain, and were certainly making more than eleven thousand dollars a year. 
Do they make that much of the day? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not every day. Not every day. Well, but they, they earn it. It's interesting, though, Pop, because you, you, as far as finances go, and I know I've got some financial people that are listening or have listened to the show. And back then, even when I was growing up, we really didn't talk about money. No. We didn't train our kids in money which probably I feel is to our detriment because they're growing up, not understanding money. I mean, I remember when my kids were little, they thought they could just go to the ATM machine and get money. I was like, well, you have to have money in the bank before you can go to the ATM machine. And I don't believe you even have an ATM card, but growing up without having a lot of, I mean, you had things taken care of for you, but not a, not a lot of money and being married early, early on, on being married, not a lot of money. How did you, how did you budget and how did, where, where were your financial goals back then? What did, where did you see yourself? Because part of you, because your pop died young, didn't think you were going to get past 50. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, in those days, things were different Um, because my, my pop died because they didn't have the means to diagnose things as they have today. He died because his coronary artery, the main artery to the heart, was just clogged and had his first heart attack at age 38. And his own father and brother were both doctors. And in 1950, there was no way that anybody in the hospital could look and do testing and say, you've got a clogged artery here, we're gonna fix it. In those days, you just died. And that's what happened with him. And uh, so things have changed a lot in that regard. But um, well, that's the way things happen. In some ways, it may have been good for us. We learned uh, we learned to live well. My mom did an unbelievable job taking care of my sister and I and her mother and an aunt and all these other ladies who lived in my house when I was going to college. And I stayed in her house in the suburbs of Philadelphia until I graduated and got married. But you took care of a lot of a lot of old ladies back then, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, it was funny. They they were they just sat around. As one one of them was my grandfather's sister, and he had promised her that he would take care of her forever, and he did. And uh, when my dad died, um, and then when he died, we we took her into our house, and she just. She was half pretty deaf, but she was uh, she must have been very intelligent, though, because all she did was read the newspaper from front to back every single day. That's all she ever did. We didn't have any TV or that show. So um, she must have known a lot about a lot of things, but she wasn't very helpful. She didn't cook. She didn't do dishes. She didn't do much. She also didn't bother me. So I guess I was OK. And my my mother's mother. Um, when her husband died, she came to live with us also. And she was she was helpful. She was helpful. But mom mom did all that stuff herself. Plus holding a full-time job also. Because when my dad died, we had, if you can imagine it, in those days, we had, even though we had a very good job at that time, uh, we only had $10,000 life insurance policy. And we had a house. And that was about all the assets that we had that I knew. But I never talked about money or assets with my father or mother anyway. So, and I used to do all kinds of jobs myself. 
I, uh, I love to make photography and I um, used to make a, you know, some money doing weddings and things from my family groups and other stuff. And that was fun. I used to work for several different grocery stores. I, I did a lot of different work and, uh, and I learned something from all of them. But one thing it was that I, I learned and I taught my children. I said, whatever you do, if possible, be your own boss. Be your own boss, which I always was, and most of my children have done the same thing. And I think that's uh, very useful for them. What, kind, what kind of investment? What kind of investing did you do, Dad? Uh, well, I invested in some clothing so your mother could go to work. <laughs> <laughs> You're so bad. <laughs> no, we didn't have any investing. We uh, we didn't have enough money. Yeah, you know, today to go to the University of Pennsylvania Dental School today is eighty thousand dollars a year. Imagine eighty thousand. How how could anybody earn eighty thousand dollars? In my day, it was of course much less. But then I also worked for ninety cents an hour. Yeah. In those days too. So anyway. Well, things, things changed, but you and mom actually had the foresight to get into real estate. That we did. Yeah, we always had a good eye for real estate and had some very good success with it. Stock market, I, I guess maybe, I don't know. I should have asked more people what to do as far as buying and selling stuff. Because I used to think I was smart enough to pick out some good stuff, which I did, but I never knew when to sell it. And um Always sold it at the wrong time. <laughs> well, that's my friend Deborah Morrison would be on here saying, put it in and just sit on it. It's like baking a cake. You don't open it. If a cake says bake for 45 minutes, you don't keep opening it up in 10 minutes and taking it in, taking it out. Just leave it in until it's done. And that's, you know, the stock market took a huge hit yesterday. And I can hear in the back of my head going, just leave it in. Just leave it in. This is a buying opportunity. This is an accumulation opportunity. So those oh, yeah. of you that are out there that are scared of the market right now, just yeah. leave it in. But oh, yeah. your real estate did uh, did some phenomenal things because you were able to put everybody through college and through through school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I just got a message that mom actually mom was in real estate too. She actually found a home for one of our guests listening, and. Uh, oh, yeah. It was a log home, but at the time, I remember that. They lived right down the street, so you did some phenomenal things, but that was a good investment. Oh, yeah. Excellent. All our investments in real estate were good. They were all good. Okay. I wish I still had some of them because they're, they're worth quite a lot now, but that's right. Yeah, it's a lot. I have, I have, I have four children who take care of me very nicely if I have a, a problem. <laughs> Well, we're just we're just grateful you're still around. <laughs> yeah, well, fortunately you're you've all been successful, so I can stay around for a few more years without worrying. Um, okay, I have got a little go ahead. Yeah. No, okay. I have a little book here called Questions for My Father. Yeah. And I think I actually had you answer some of them because I want to know all about you guys and so i'm willing to ask those questions and it's fun so i have one here it says and this is about you can you remember because we're going back 93 years right can yeah. you remember your parents laughing and what was the reason 
Yeah, well, my dad was a very quiet person, and uh, but he had a great sense of humor. I found out after he died when I found some documents that he had that were jokes passed around amongst his friends. Um, but laughing, yeah, there wasn't wasn't that much to laugh about. They were they were bridge players, and not usually you don't laugh when you're playing bridge <laughs> unless you bid seven and make two. And um, let's see. No, I, I don't. I don't remember. Dad was, a, as I say, a quiet, quiet person. But uh, he did have a good sense of humor. But uh, he didn't exhibit it a lot. Like no. Grandma, Grandma Sparks. I remember her with big smiles on her face. She was always seemed always happy to me. Yes, I think she was, and she she went through some very tough times. She really did, but I never saw her cry. I never saw her complain. So those things go together too. She, I think, she had a pretty good sense of humor too. But uh, I know the the boys and you guys, you guys have some good senses of humor, I think, too, which is hopefully in turn, you know, passed down. Who knows? Well, I, I say that goofball gene that doesn't fall too far from the tree. <laughs> Yeah, who knows? Maybe, you, maybe Dad might be laughing right now. Who knows? Well, so. I was I was thinking you and Mom just celebrated your 67th wedding anniversary, and congratulations on that. That in itself is an honor. Uh, I was uh, looking at a friend of mine who's been married for f- over 40 years, uh, and she and her husband came on and said that the, the their success was due to him making her laugh and mutual respect. So what, what are your uh, keys to living a long life and, and being happily married for all those years? Well, the, probably the main one, which is kind of cliche, is that basically is don't ever, don't ever go to sleep with your wife angry because that you, you've got to settle whatever your difficulty might be before you go to bed at night and go to sleep because the, that's not a good way to start the next day. And we've never done that. So, or we've always abided by that so-called rule and not had a problem there at all. And uh, we have other families in the overall family that have had difficulty getting along with people and who fight and not physically battle, but uh, orally enough to the point where there's lots of bad feelings all the time. That's that could never be good. Could never be good. So you have your youngest grandson getting married in a couple of weeks. Yep. What would be your grandfatherly advice to him starting off in marriage? Don't ever go to bed, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> yeah. And the other is don't ever go to bed before your marriage. <laughs> Oh, Dad, we won't get into that. <laughs> Mom's sitting in the back going, <laughs> none of our business, Pop, none of our business. Yeah, I know. Uh, but it is pretty exciting. We're going up to Washington or D.C. area for a wedding, and there will be, not everybody's together. That's the, that's the hard part about every, all of our kids and grandkids being all around the world right now. It's, it's hard to get everybody together. But those of us that will be together will be celebrating uh, a really lovely wedding up in Washington. 
and you're um, traveling. Do you have any trepidation about traveling these days? No, no. I just, I, it's just too far for us to drive from Florida to Vermont like we did for 30 years. <clears throat> that was probably the happiest years of my life as far as residents would go when we had a nice house in Florida and we had a nice house in Vermont. And we would do six months, this is after I retired. This would do six months in each place and that was perfect. That was perfect. We had a great group of friends in both places and now they're all gone. Almost all gone. So that's the sad part of that. Yeah. Well, you have had, I, I remember over the years, you've had the most extraordinary friends. And yeah. I, I remember moms telling me one time that it was so important for the men in our lives, particularly, to have men friends. Yeah. Because the girls always seem to find people to talk to. But as you get older, too, the men uh, are not around as much. And you, you were the youngest for a long time. You know, when you yeah. remember up in Woodstock, you were the youngest. And uh, how were you able to cultivate those friends? What did you guys like to do together? The guys? You and your guys. Oh, yeah. Well, we played a little bit of poker, like a, a poker group. And they, they played together maybe, you know, maybe once every week or two weeks. Not all the time. And uh, that was always fun. And of course, we all play golf, mainly. That was probably the largest connecting tissue there. <clears throat> and um, unfortunately, almost every one of my golfing friends from Florida and Vermont are no longer here. And uh, they may be three putting in heaven <laughs> or someplace else, I'm not sure. But uh, anyway, um, that was one of the things that we do, we did. Uh, we were quite involved in Rotary Club, which involved a lot of guys who were also friends. And that was a, that was a weekly luncheon thing. And that was good. We lived in a small town, too. And, um, you know, we, we knew 90% of the people in the town. Probably there were, there were only three or 4,000 people at the most in our little town in Vermont where I practiced. But I... I was fortunate enough to have patients in some cases as far as 40, 40 miles away. <clears throat> and then up in Vermont, people don't think that much of driving that far because there's not so much traffic. It's just the weather conditions that can be problems. <clears throat> and um, so those people are, they're still going to my old office. It's still getting bigger. Uh, just got a notice the other day that they, they just took in another another dentist, another dentist, another hygienist. So um, I'm happy that that's worked out well for them. Well, we grew, you grew, uh, raised the family in Woodstock, Vermont. And the question here is what brought you to Woodstock? Well, let's see. First thing was a Chevy. Oh, they're not that car. did most of the work. But <laughs> Who brought you to Woodstock is the better question, I think. Who? Yeah, well, there was a there was an old couple in our town in the church who uh, were partly responsible for that. We started looking, <clears throat> started looking around after we were in this getting ready to get out of the military. Uh, we didn't want to go back to Long Island, where Gwen's family was. <clears throat> I was never a great fan of Long Island, and we didn't want to go back to Philadelphia, although that would have been okay. 
<clears throat> and we were in Vermont for a couple of years and decided, you know, this is pretty nice and still think so. Yeah. And so anyway, uh, we were looking around for a place to go. So I used to go to the local dental meetings, state in New Hampshire and Vermont and met several people that I still know. And um, that, they were looking for a dentist and we got a, a letter from the governor of Vermont who uh, invited us to come to visit him in his home for dinner, at which time they suggested that we might, we like, would like to look at some places in Vermont to practice. And one of them was the town that he lived in, but it was, it was a little too small. It was probably less than 1500. And years later, it's funny, I got a lot of patients from that little town, even though it was 30, 40 miles away from where we ended up. <clears throat> and that's how we got there. And then there was a group in our in Woodstock, which was always known to be one of the nicer villages in the United States and still is. <clears throat> and so um, we went to uh, had some people there who were telling me that they have put over building at a new health center. We only had a couple, one or two MDs at that time, and one dentist who wanted to move to another town. And <clears throat> would I be interested in that? So this older couple that uh, we had met in the church there uh, had, were on the board of this health center, and they asked me if I'd be interested in being the dentist for that health center. And uh, they told me what they could do, and they could provide all my equipment and everything else for me. And what a, it was interesting because equipping a dental office is very expensive, very expensive. I mean, even a dental chair alone, like really, three to five thousand dollars, and you need you need these days three or four of those at least. <clears throat> anyway, they have to have the space and also all the equipment, and uh, they were willing to buy all that for me and have me pay it um, off over a ten-year period, no interest. So I was able to start out with all new equipment right away, which was very nice. And that worked out fine. And you were the only dentist for a long time. I, well, yeah. yeah, there was another another old gentleman who came into town the same time I did. He was, he was sick of practicing in Connecticut. So he moved up and bought a house in our town and he started practicing in the same building that I was in, which was, which was fine. Okay. Hey. There's, there's a business in them. Someone's calling at the office phone. Let it go to voicemail for now. We'll call them back. Don't worry about it. No, I'll just, I'll just let it go. Daniel Mahoney. Okay. Yeah, see, folks, so Dad is right now. Right now, Doctor Jack is in the uh, the director of communications mode at the company. Yeah, I have to work all the time. The phone rings at night. It rings during there the day. They, they're calling <laughs> in to place an order and wish you a happy birthday. So. All right, the time is flying by, Dad, and I could have asked you a ton of things, but I want to ask one more thing. Yeah. What's the best part about getting older? Just to sit by the phone and let it ring. <laughs> um, the best part about getting older? Yeah. Well, the best part that I can think of offhand is that I been lucky enough to be this age and still be able to do most everything that I always did if I want to even play golf I don't want to but uh, I can and uh, I think mentally 
uh, it's nice to be able to think that I can still do most everything the way I always did. I do have times when I find it difficult to really concentrate on something, but I can still um, you know, do almost anything around the house, take care of things, fix things, recommend people doing things such. And um, the only thing I still can't do too well is pick stocks, which I gave up on that. <laughs> and um, well, that's about all. I, <clears throat> I think that uh, we've we've done everything over the years well. I think we've guided our children well, and uh, they've made us all very happy with what they have done, what they are doing, what their children are doing. Uh, I can't complain. I can't really complain about anything. Well, you know? I think the most extraordinary thing that you're keeping busy with, other than working for me or with me, is your train set. Can you just explain what the trains have meant to you uh, over all these years? Yeah, well, it's interesting because my grandpa, my mother's father, worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad in Philadelphia. And he used to always take me as a little boy about, it seemed like 10 miles, but it was probably only a mile down the road to a place where the Pennsylvania Railroad had a junction with all trains going by all the time. He'd take me down there and we'd sit there for an hour or two and just watch the trains go by. And I count the cars, you know, maybe 100, sometimes 200 cars on one train. And that was fun. So, and then they used to give me little mementos on the Pennsylvania Railroad, like a, a calendar. Pennsylvania Railroad had a special calendar that they did, they did every year, which was very well known, beautiful photographs of trains. <clears throat> and little things like pen knife that had train on it and stuff like that. So then I always had toy trains at Christmas time. And they started back with Lionel, Lionel trains way back in the 40s. And um, that were fun. And then when I got into college, uh, I, photography was my main hobby at that time. And I used to even make some money doing that, but not a lot. But I just got into the trains and uh, I always liked building things. I used to build my own toys out of cardboard. And I still remember doing that as a kid. And my father's shirts would come back from the laundry with a big, you know, maybe a eight foot wide by 12 foot piece of cardboard in each shirt after it was pressed in order to keep it pressed. And they made beautiful equipment or materials to build things. So I used to build little trucks, army trucks and games and everything out of cardboard. And I liked doing that. And that was, uh, that was always fun. And I lost my track there. Oh, the the trains. Yeah. Yes. When I was in college, we lived in a, in a two-story house with a big basement. And I, I somehow, I'm not sure who inter got me interested in the trains themselves, but I guess I always had a love of trains. <clears throat> and so I started building that when I was in college. And uh, that involved building things. In those days, you had to put a lot of the trains together yourself. In some cases, from scratch, you had to put everything together. And even carved the wood in some cases. And I used to do a lot of model airplanes too. And uh, so anyway, I started building that in my basement of my house, but it got so massive that when we moved from the house, the mountains that I had built on this platform, the platform was probably you know, 10, 10 by 12 feet and pretty big. And I had mountains on there, which I made out of plaster of Paris, which is very heavy. And the mountains were two or three feet high, some of them. And they were so 
cumbersome and heavy that I couldn't move them easily. So I just we just left them there when we sold the house. But I took the trains and the tracks. And then as we went from a little bit nicer, bigger home to another nicer place with more room for trains, I kept building them up. And so the kids got interested in them somewhat. But young people are not as interested in trains as they were in my day. In fact, all the train clubs around the country today are almost entirely inhabited by people 70 and 80 years and older old old men but you have an extraordinary imagination and the ability to create something out of nothing yeah that's amazing to me you'll take i remember when you were making the uh my boys fly the the osprey and the black hawk and then uh, my nephew flies a, uh, a seahawk and i remember yeah. when you put the models together of those aircraft for your airport at your plane at your train uh depot uh, yeah. It was extraordinary that even the little the little pieces of plastic from the model you made into light poles or flag poles or something. I mean, your mind is always going. And I think that that has been a tremendous asset in keeping so active <gasps> all these years. Because people yeah. ask me, how does he, you know, for 93, he's extraordinary and just funny and engaging. And so... I think I attribute it to always being uh, speaking to other people. I think working for me, thank, thank you very much for doing that, uh, has kept you engaged with people. Yeah. So that when you retired or when you've been out, you're not alone. You're, you and mom don't isolate. You've always had people around you. And I found that to be a tremendous asset in keeping you so engaged in life. Yeah. And also they're not police. They're not police. Well, you have wonderful police in Atlantis, and uh, yeah, we do. They become your friends. We don't want them. We don't want them too familiar because that's usually the nine one one call, and we don't want that. So, no. yeah, the only thing that I want to mention that, that bothers me a little bit is my mom said the same thing fifty years ago. I don't know what's going wrong with this country, and I said that's the exact same thing today because things that are happening today make me so angry about what's happening with the people's you know, aspect of how they look at the military, how they look at the politics. All this stuff is just going so bananas that it makes me wonder, how can we keep going like this? We can't, and yet it, it just still happens. You know, we can't get things straightened out. We get somebody who's worthwhile in government, next thing you know, they screw up. Or they get arrested or something. Well, and that's unfortunate. That's when I decide I'm going to just live my life in my five-mile bubble. <laughs> I think that's probably right. And you and mom are within that bubble. And for me, it's the joy of being able to spend time with you because I know that we don't all live forever. And we've had folks in our lives that have passed away very young. And right. I'm just, I, I am very grateful that you and mom have lived such a long loving life and have been such great examples to me and to the boys and we're having them come in today for a for a wonderful birthday weekend yes. uh, so my brothers are coming in with their wives and the others are all here in spirit um but we're gonna we're gonna end this show pop because we have a couple of guests on or people participating on that i will bring on but i want to provide their privacy uh we'll bring them on and you can have a little chat with those that, those that are here from out of town so yeah, we'll be back 
Thank you so much. Um, any uh, last parting words on what you're gonna do for the next seven years of your employment contract? Well, let's see. The thought of a massive raise crossed my mind, but I don't think that'll work. And then I thought of a company car, like a Porsche would be good. A few little things like that. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when I, when I get a list. Well, my list is complete. Okay. <laughs> I'll talk to the accountant about our benefits package. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I know what his answer will be, so that's all right. That's fine, Dad. But thank you so much for providing so much joy to me and, and my life. And uh, for you and Mom being the examples you've been, you've been just tremendous. And I wish you a very happy 93rd birthday and many, many more happy ones and healthy ones to come. Uh, well, thank you. Well, if, if the benefits of the things that you have gotten from us are anywhere near as good as what you've given us and the other boys uh, too, We've been extremely lucky, extremely happy, and hope it continues for a long time. Well, I love the t-shirt that you have. It says, if getting older is perfection, I'm near perfection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, some of my other t-shirts say, old guys rule. <laughs> okay, old guys. Well, you're, you're, you may, you're not old in spirit, Pop. You just cracked me up. So happy, happy birthday. And thank you so much for being my special, special guest on Stand Up and Speak Up. And now it's time for us to get back to work. Thank you for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. If you are the victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, Florida, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to help victims around the world receive the help they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our Benfotemian products at benfocomplete.com. Use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thank you for being with us today. Go to my website, The Woman Behind the Smile, for additional resources and information. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and enjoy the replays. My books are all available on amazon.com and audible, and I encourage you to join us again. Have a great day. My past guest, Ron Rappaport, two-time male breast cancer survivor and lymphedema thriver, hosts an awesome podcast titled It's a Rap with Rap, which features guests that have overcome life's challenges and adversities and can inspire, motivate, and educate us on an assortment of topics. This is a podcast with purpose and worth checking out. It can be heard on most major platforms and on Ron's website. It's a rap with rap.com. Thank you.